and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange sees RA's Andrew Rice sitting down with Richard Devine, one of the world's leading sound designers and a veteran producer of abstract, angular electronic music. Recorded at Ableton's recent Loop conference in Los Angeles, we hear of Devine's obsession with sound and synthesis in particular. Over the past decade, he's become one of the most visible practitioners in the field, especially among Eurorack modular enthusiasts. This year, he released an album written primarily on Eurorack systems, and we hear how he chained multiple racks together to perform its elaborate compositions in real time. Finally, Devine goes into detail on some of his recent sound design projects for clients like Google and Jaguar, revealing the challenges of working in emerging platforms like virtual reality and electric car design. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Richard Devine is up next. Your new album that just came out, uh, it's made mostly with modular equipment, right? It was, yeah, contrived on about, I would say, around six, seven, eight modular systems that are at my studio, uh, most of which uh, I built up over about five or six years. Um, some of them were in um, cases. Um, then there's some custom cases I had built, which house some of the bigger systems that some people see in pictures and videos. Um, and then I also used two Clavia Nord G2 um, digital synth- modular synthesizers, which are basically, um, it's still my favorite synth. It was released in 2004. It's, it's not a new piece of equipment, but it's definitely, you know, um, held up o- over all these years and it's still fairly flexible. And the concept with it is also modular, basically. You're, um, plugging in virtual modules in a software environment and then connecting these virtual cables. So it's kind of like you're a rack, but in a software format. But what's cool is you can dump the patches to the hardware keyboard um, and then assign th- uh, the knob assignments to all the knobs and you know functions per LCD screen. So you have multiple pages you can make assignments to. So it's a, f- a very powerful system even today. Um, and I've been using it for since the beginning, since... Uh, I uh, just wanted. I just like the sound of it, and it complemented the Eurorack systems that I had built up. The sounds kind of integrated together, so that's what pretty much made up. Uh, I would say, like, yeah, the bulk of the record. Was your process for this record different than the past few? Because it took you a long time to make it, right? Yeah, this one was different. Um, in that, you know, previously I had used. Compu- you know, computers um, to do most of the sequencing. A lot of it was done in the box uh, using um, you know, various environments like Reactor and Max MSP and um, Logic and among other um, things, mostly DSP based, a lot of heavy DSP processing and there was a lot of field recordings so I was capturing a lot of stuff um, you know, recording with like contact mics, hydrophones, or you know, stereo condenser microphones, and then taking a lot of that material manipul- and manipulating it in the computer, and then sort of combining that with like synthesis and stuff. Whereas this this record didn't use any samples at all. It was everything was completely designed from the ground up. All the drums, um, you know, all the percussion, all the synth textures and effects that you're hearing were all um, 
you know, using um, Eurorack modules, um, Eurorack effects modules, and um, everything was kind of going into uh, my mindset was I wanted to do it mostly by hand and not use a mouse and look at a timeline editor and you know think about thing. it just it made me think about things differently kind of performing the tracks in real time and driving the changes um, emotionally by feeling rather than you know saying oh here at one minute and 20 seconds on the timeline I want this transition to happen to go into, into the chorus of the track. It was it was more of a organic process, so to speak. So that was, you know, I guess one of the biggest differences from how I've worked in the past where the computer, I was kind of doing everything by hand digitally and placing everything on a timeline. And then this was more about it, more about it being like a freeform experience, <laughs> kind of just building these systems. And then the environment sort of still sort of uh, you create this environment that kind of happens with the modular, and then that environment, I call it an environment because it's basically this patch network of, of cables and electricity that's controlling various modules that are generating the sounds, and it's this, this one little thing that's happening that's kind of floating there for, you know, this one moment in time, and you, you kind of have to, like, capture that moment that's sort of like audio snapshot of what's happening, which I, th I find I found that really fascinating because the second you could lose it all, like there's just this like fine line, you could turn the wrong knob, the power could go out, the temperature of the room could change and the oscillators could all drift and completely shift the sound of the patch and you've lost it. So it's like you're, you're, you're like riding the fine line of just, um, you know, it completely being destroyed at any second so it's like this it's almost exhilarating in a way to write music that way and you know compared to the computer where I could save things and recall things and and in that whole process I would get really lazy a lot of times so sometimes I'd work on a track and I'm like oh I could go back to it I'll just open the session so I have some tracks that I've been working on for years <laughs> and they're sitting on my hard drive just because I'm like I know I can go back to them and keep refining them and making them perfect and even more perfect. So in the end, I'm not really being productive. I'm just, I, I, I keep working on these tracks that never end up getting finished. But with the modular, I had to force myself to finish up because once you pull the patch, it's done. So my goal had been since 2016, uh, I, I think somewhere in February of that year, I said, you know what, I'm going to record a new track every night and see where it goes, patch up a new track. And some of it might be shit, some of it might be great. There were things that spontaneously happened that, you know, I never could even imagine would have been things that were, could be used in, you know, as a composition. There were, there were lots of happy accidents that happened and there were some things that, um, lots of experiments that I conducted just to see what would happen that I recorded and later turned into tracks. And this is basically what that was an accumulation of was, was that whole process leading up until, um, where we're at today. So when you're recording these patches and doing experiments every night and seeing what happens, how did you then tra change them into tracks or work them into tracks or compositions? Well, initially I would get a patch. I would get it to a point where I was like, Whoa, I have something kind of cool here. Like I've, if it was str something that was strong enough that struck me emotionally, then I was like, okay, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this and flesh this out. I would then decide how I wanted the track to move. So I would draw diagrams. I'd be like, all right, I want the track to move through different movements and sort of kind of evolve from one point to another. So what I would do is I'd had the, the, pa the way I designed most of the tracks is I had, um, five or six cases set up each case had its own set of sequencers in it and sound sources filters envelopes vcas and effects um a, a hybrid collection of digital and analog oscillators there was all kinds of crazy stuff um so the way that i that i planned it out for for, the, for this record is one of the most difficult things to do with modular stuff is to be able to change from one set of sounds to a completely different set of sounds which can be really difficult because if you know if you're trying to patch up and set up things and tune oscillators and set up different things it, it takes a lot of time to do that and i was 
early on when I was doing my live shows that way. It was just taking forever to do things to make transitions happen. So I kept trying to figure out ways to, to speed those processes up by using modules that were allowed me to store presets and you know you know using multiple sequencers that had where i'd fill up the memory and then not have to like repatch so much um so what i would do is i would set up uh, for the record i would set up a part that would play at one part in the track for each case and all of the cases shared the same clock so there'd be one case that would be the master that would basically have the master tempo and then that clock would be multiplied across all four cases and then I would have what I'd call transition modules that would be a sampler module that would play several layers of samples to buy me maybe like a f maybe a 5 to 10, 15, sometimes 20 second sample that would play, that would kind of give me a few seconds to kind of get the next case ready to, to perform the next part of the song. So I wanted these songs to have a lot of dynamic changes um, on the record. So you may have noticed on sort live there's there's a few tracks where they distinctively go through different movements and then there's parts where things kind of mutate and change and get to a point and then there might be a break where there's um some sort of sounds kind of breaking apart and uh something happening and then it goes into a completely different part um so that's how i was able to sort of design out the structure of the tracks uh and then actually perform them uh you know perform by basically starting i would start sort of a going from like a left to right configuration like start from the left case is like the beginning of the track and then play through and, per and basically perform through the pieces on the average i would say maybe 20 to 30 takes per track some of them are more i i went through a lot of takes and then um because a lot of the stuff would spontaneously happen you would get a couple things where i'd be like oh i don't i didn't quite like how something happened here uh, so I'd perform it again and get a better take of it. Sometimes it'd be a worse take, you know. It would, there were some things, because there was random things happening. Some of the rhythms were generated. Um, like, there were, you know, I'm, I used, like, stochastic sequencing and probability-based sequencing. So it wasn't all, like, things that were in my control. So it was kind of just, like, throwing the dice out and just kind of being like, all right, this one might be the one. <laughs> and um, so that was... That was interesting, kind of making music that way, um, and so that's that's generally how most, uh, you know, how I put most of the tracks together um, in that way, and uh, and I spent a lot of time um, mixing this record, like really trying to get the mixes to sound like really big but very deep, but there was still lots of subtleness in them, lots of detail. So I'd spent a good like i want to say eight or nine months buying i've been buying a lot of like outboard equipment and i went just recently you know wanted to remove the computer completely so i went to analog summing so i'm using like analog summing mixers and actually using like physical hardware like physical compressors and limiter uh, analog limiters and eqs and I, I really really wanted a sound the sound of the record to be different i didn't want it to be this you know cold sort of clinical i've said this in other interviews where it was like my old records they sounded cold and clinical they were all dsp based and they were all made in the computer it was all in the box um, and i wanted this record to be completely different in the way it sounded and felt but it's still i still wanted it to sound like me but kind of have a different kind of sound to it i guess so to speak so do you feel like the way you um played and composed the tracks was more like traditionally musical in terms of per song uh or compositional compared to your past work i would say they're very similar i was doing very similar things to how i would do things in the computer um i don't know how to explain it i guess it's just the way that i work like I, I'm, I'm basically doing the same things that i was doing ever since i was making tracks like in, the, in like the mid 90s when i had to do everything with like the Akai samplers and I only I had really li limited memory to use my first Akai sampler had like 32 uh, megabytes of memory and I remember having to figure out okay how am I going to make this song do all this stuff in like this short amount of time and it, it, at least for my music anyways I mean I, I know there's it, it everybody's styles are different and their sound requirements are completely different but for me I, I, I there's a for people that know my work there's there's a 
a whole barrage of different sounds and textures that you might hear in the span of like five or six minutes and it could be you know literally like hundreds of things you're hearing flying around um so it takes a bit of work and planning you know even back then to do what i wanted to do and i remember I, what i would do back then is i would record like maybe one minute fill up my sampler record one minute of a track and then i would glue sections i would load up my sampler again play the second minute of the track glue that part to the first minute and then so on you would do the third and fourth minute to make the full complete piece and i was just pushing the technology as far as i could at the time and i'm kind of doing the same thing right now with the eurorack stuff like maxing out what i can do with each case to its full capability and then just moving to the next case it's maxed out with the full capability of what that 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 whole case could do with that configuration and then playing through each one of those and then using utilizing as much as i can possibly in the short you know in that short time frame so just really trying to make the most of what i have um is the, is the way that i was looking at it when i was composing this record and you know it's pretty much no different it's it's no different than how i was doing things in the past it's just using different instruments and and different technology now and and doing things more by by hand than doing it with a keyboard and a mouse if that means anything <laughs> what drove you in the direction of doing things by hand and using the eurorack systems more and moving away from the computer for the album well um for me i actually started out using analog equipment first my um some of the first things i bought were analog synthesizers like the uh, sh101 uh, bought a lot of the early roland xox series tb303 mc202 um, back in the early 90s and the first real modular or semi-modular synth i got my hands on was an arp 2600 and i got that in high school age i was around 17 years old got it at a pawn shop in Atlanta and that kind of like really opened my ears to a whole different world of sounds I at the time I wasn't really I, I didn't have a synthesizer up until that point that allowed me to really do these more sort of abstract um, more complex you know synthesis techniques like cross modulation FM synthesis amplitude modulation ring modulation and um, you know spring reverb all these all these components that were already built into the ARP, um, you know, you could work at it like a really simple level, but you could do more complex things with it. And um, so I started to make a lot of music with the ARP, and then it kind of spurred my interest in using um, analog modular synthesizers. And so I started to buy more in the mid-90s, like the EML uh, Electrocomp. The EML 101 was another one that I got, and then the uh, EMS Synthi, um, the AKS which was another really big synth for me, a portable synthesizer. I used to take that thing everywhere with me. I made music, made a good amount of music for about five or six years on that synth, and it was uh, it was just so great because it was so small. It had a portable, like it was like in a portable suitcase. Didn't use patch cables. It used these uh, resistor uh, pins that you use in this pin matrix that looked like kind of like the game Battleship with different colored pins and. Um, so it was really easy to recall patches and then patch things up fairly quickly and, and see the relationship between, um, you know, what was happening. And you had a joystick controller and a sequencer. Um, so there was a lot of really cool stuff that you could do. I used to remember, you know, learning and patching at my mom's restaurant. You know, I, I worked as a cook at her at her restaurant. I used to set the uh, EMS back in the... Uh, in our food storage room on top of the refrigerator so in between like cooking i'd go back there with headphones and <laughs> and was like making sounds and learning and stuff and uh yeah so I, so for me i think it's it, my, my story is probably a little different than maybe most people that have gotten into like the whole eurorack thing my my first analog synthesizers were these synths you know that were made in the 60s and late 70s and using very old technology and that was kind of like the foundation for me so i'd always been make that's how i started and then i kind of went away from that when i started getting into computers in like the i would say like late 90s and then i started to go pretty hardcore for you know a good solid 10 years and i still held on to like my 
analog synthesizers more for like sampling but then i kind of just went straight into computer synthesis and doing it all internally and then uh i want to say around 2005 i discovered dieter dofer's system the his year, well, I mean, he created the Iraq format that we're we here today, and um, I was really intrigued by his stuff because up until that point, every synth that I had bought was a fixed system, meaning you'd buy it, and the components were pre-configured. You couldn't change anything. You were stuck with what you had. Um, with Dieter Dofer's systems, you basically bought an empty case, and from there, you would look in a catalog, and he had... I, I want to say it was like 150 different, maybe 120, 150 different modules you could pick from. And you basically design the system that you would want to use. So, you know, you could make an effects box, a sequencing rig, or, um, you know, just a weird sound drone generation box, or really whatever you wanted. It's whatever your mind could think of. And what was so great about it is it's it was modular to the level of you could you could move the modules around and reconfigure any way you wanted to so it, it was really like building your own perfect custom instrument that really worked to the way that you wanted to work so that concept to me at that time was so revolution revolutionary to me i was i was just like wow i can design my own synth and um really really like fine tune this thing to the way um you know, the, to the way I want to make music with. So um, I kept with it. I bought two cases straight away. I filled up, filled them up right away, and I was pretty much hooked at that point. And then um, continued to go from there at that point. And just went, it's, it's funny, because, yeah, I'm like saying, I started at analog, I left it, and then I came, started to come back full circle when I got into your Iraq in 2005, and then I kind of just went back on the path again. Um, there's obviously been like an explosion of interest in modular synth, especially because of Eurorack. Um, how do you feel about that? Like, there's a lot of like modular hobbyists or people who just collect modules, and there's a lot of. I think I feel like there's almost like a backlash against modular synthesis now. Yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting. It's it's funny because like when I was getting into it in the mid '90s, when I was buying a lot of these old modular synths a lot of the old studios a lot of the universities uh they were just trying to get rid of the stuff no one wanted this stuff like so i was getting this stuff for like nothing and then it slowly started to creep in uh popularity back you know i would say 2006 2007 it was starting to kind of creep up like you know companies like make noise tip top audio started popping up um plan b and livewire some of the first companies analog solutions schwayman um started to pop up and you started to see these other third-party manufacturers making modules for the for the Eurorack format and then it started to kind of you know uh ramp people's interest and then um all of a sudden it just took over it was like this explosion you know like you said that's uh, I, I i personally think it was it's awesome i uh i think a lot of people were in my shoes you know we'd been we're using computers we've been in studios and you know we're typically using like a mouse and a keyboard to run these sessions and I, I and i'm you know it's in the same boat as everybody else you know i was using pro tools and ableton and logic and a lot of these digital audio workstations you just the you know the computer is still probably the most powerful instrument in the world you could do anything with a computer i tell people that all the time but the thing that the, that i feel that lacks with a computer sometimes is the physical interaction with with how you manipulate sound in ways with your hands. I, I think that's still something that that is is lacking. The instant feedback you get when you play like a real instrument or you're working with like a modular synth. And I think that for a lot of people is the reason is a big reason why a lot of people moved over to using these going back to hardware and using modular synths because it's so hands on. The feedback is that you get from it is just immediate and you don't have to you know things that you do on you say like on a modular system you do you know a couple dozen knob tweaks and turns and things to do those same sort of things in a computer would take you maybe 20 30 minutes to do with a mouse because you're having to do it one uh you know one tweak at a time using a single uh, you know click 
to change parameters and then even to set up automation you have to draw it in or you set up a controller and there's there's so many things you have to just set up just to get something happening when you can just do it you know right away with a piece of hardware so i think a lot of people at least for me that was one of the bigger um things was just kind of getting back to my roots and then um just getting just tired of dealing with a mouse and you know computer keyboard all day to make music just kind of was kind of a drab for me so I think that was a big thing for a lot of people and also the sound too you can get really interesting sounds um so the popularity of like you know never getting the same thing twice you know it's like a endless sample library for people who maybe want to use it as you know an inspiration springboard for other ideas um for compositions or sound design stuff and um but yeah, but I can see the exact opposite of that too. I mean, there's, you know, there's people that are doing really great things with modulars and then there's people that are not doing such great stuff with modulars, you know, I mean, you hear a lot of crap and even there's people that said that a lot of my stuff is crap too. I lo- you know, there's both ends of the spectrum, you know, like, oh, it just sounds like a bunch of random robotic bleeps and bloops and noise and, you know, um, so yeah, like I said, I mean there there are you know there's people that love it and there's people that hate it and um, you know I just I just look at it as just another tool in my studio you know like like an artist has their set of paint brushes and different you know colors of paint that they want to paint with I I look at it just just as like another artistic tool to use but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing. I mean, in the end, I think it's great. I think it's great to have so many options um, when it comes to like all this 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 resurgence of all this analog and modular stuff. I think it's really cool. Kind of, it's like opening newer generations up to using synthesis because synthesis is so powerful. You can do so many cool things with it. And um, you know, I, I personally don't feel it's I don't feel it's a negative thing. I mean, you know, I, I'm. If, if anything, I think we have too many things out right now. I think it's hard to make a decision on what you want to buy and use in your studio. I think that's the biggest problem for me is, you know, there's just so much stuff out there. Now, I don't know. You know, I have friends asking me all the time, hey, what, I want to get a system. What should I get? I'm like, man, there's so much stuff right now. Like, it'd be hard to answer your question. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's, in general, I think it's a really cool thing. I think this we're we're living in exciting times right now where, you're an electronic producer the the tools that we have now to do things it's just so it's so much fun you no matter what you get you're gonna have a blast with it so um i think that's i think it's pretty special times that we're living in (laughs) kind of on the same note uh i've been reading a lot about your uh your sound design work uh, for like bigger corporate clients and products, which are really like not just making sounds for like, you know, uh, an operating system or even like a, like movies or TV, but you're actually like designing environments uh, like the, you did the sound for the Jaguar electric car, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the I-Pace. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I read that you said making the sound for the acceleration uh, was one of the hardest things you ever had to do. Uh, why was that? Because that that whole world just seems so completely foreign to me. Like I don't even know what you're making the sounds out of. So yeah, that's it. It is completely a different world. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people probably think that my job is like sitting in a studio all day playing with like synths and stuff and making weird fart noises. And um, but really, it's quite the opposite. I'm working with a lot of these um, clients and these pretty stressful. Uh, projects where I'm having to figure out how to implement sound into these newer technologies, these new products that are coming out that um, create some really strange, unique problems that you wouldn't normally encounter using audio. Like, you know, with the car I worked on with Jaguar, I've actually been working with Jaguar Range Rover for about five, six years. I've worked on a couple prototype cars the I-Pace actually was the first car that, that you could like, that I worked on with them that you could go actually into a dealership and buy. But we had worked on a couple prototype cars um, behind the scenes and we were kind of like refining the technology and learning. We were kind of making mistakes, learning things and trying to figure out, you know, cause 
I want to say about four or five years ago, they uh, there was a legislation law that got passed in the UK that said that all electric vehicles had to emit a sound. There needed to be an exterior sound that pedestrians could hear from a distance from, you know, I don't know, 100, 100 feet away. If you're, if you're blind, you're, you're a person with disabilities who can't see really well, you need to be able to hear this electric car coming through the parking lot. So you had a lot of lawsuits uh, by different electric car companies because of all these accidents that were happening. So they were like, okay, we need to put this into effect. Now it's mandatory that they all needed to make a sound. Um, so they were originally presented with this problem. One of the people from the um, sound, I want to say there's uh, the, the sound team at, at Jaguar contacted me over Twitter out of all places. A friend of mine named Ian, really great guy. Um, they said, hey, we're interested in maybe uh, working with you on this project. It might sound, sound crazy, but we need to put sound in this vehicle, an electric vehicle that doesn't make any sound. It's virtually silent, but we have to create that sound. We also have to create the, you know, the, basically the audio signature of the, the entire car. So I was responsible not only for the exterior engine EV sound, but also with the engine sound of what you heard inside the car, as well as every other sound that the car makes from the blinker sounds to all the alert notification sounds. Um, there's a navigation and built-in sort of touchscreen and all the various touchscreen control sounds and selection menu sounds. Um, and there's like a welcoming tone. There's a battery charge, uh, low battery charging sound. Um, pretty much anything that you hear in the car, uh, I was responsible for creating, which was a very daunting, challenging task. Um, and as you mentioned, the, the EV, the engine sound was probably the one of the most challenging sounds to create um, because it's the uh, it's like an audio reactive sound that's based on many different things, how fast or slow the car is moving, and the, the, how many people are in the car, there's like, you know, weight and load limits to the car. And then, um, so it's a lot of physical things and wind noise. I was working with a whole team of engineers where we were just studying how my engine models would, would work with the sound of the wind of how the, how the sound of uh, the airflow moving through the car sounded with my sounds. And uh, it was very, it was a very challenging project um, and took took a you know, a few years of, of, of trial and error and, and learning because um, I, I didn't have a book for any of this. I didn't have any other sound designer friends that I was calling them. Hey, have you ever done this? Um, and they were like, no, Rich, I have not done this. Um, and I think at the time when we started doing research, I think Audi... Audi had started, there was one designer at Audi that was starting to work on some of the stuff. There wasn't really many people that were doing this. So I was kind of really on my own, um, kind of stumbling through it. Um, but uh, very exciting product. It was, like I said, um, the the project went off really well. Like They were very happy in the end. And um, it was it was exhilarating to see it finally released into the world. And it's it, to see, to create something using audio be applied in, and for this type of application, it was really exciting to see this, it's like a physical object that, where they can sit in the car and they can experience it, they can actually drive it. And, you know, that, that to me was like, wow, if you would ask me that 10 years ago, I would have said, are you kidding me? Or really, are we really gonna have cars that are, that we're gonna actually be designing sounds for? I mean, you know, this is such a new thing. Um, so it's, you know, I think as we move to alternative energy sources for you know, vehicles, I think we move away from fuel-based cars. We're gonna we're gonna see this becoming more. It's just gonna be becoming more common. I think we're gonna you know, I think twenty years from now, I think we're gonna all be in these self-driving electric cars. I don't think we're gonna even be driving cars anymore. We're just gonna get in a car. You type in in the system where you want to go, and it's just gonna take you there. And em emitting fake sound. Well, not fake sound, but emitting sound all the it, time instead of engine noise. Engine, you know? Yeah, there won't even be any engine noise. There won't be any gasoline-based cars anymore that'll be, you know, I think, uh, it, in my humble opinion, I, I, I think that's where, where things are going to be. I know all the car manufacturers are, are, are moving their cars to be all either, they're either in the hybrid transitioning, hybrid electric vehicles, or they're fully moving to electric cars. And I just think that 
we're eventually going to completely move to that. Um, it makes the most sense, but yeah, it was, it was a crazy project. Um, and I think, um, we're already slated to work on another car. Um, I don't know how soon, but, um, it's going to be the next thing, but yeah, it was, um, I learned a lot. There's, um, there's lots of interesting things. Yeah. That, that, um, you know, it's, it's applying a lot of things that I've learned as a sound designer, but really, really putting your skills to the test in a whole different area, you know, and we ran into all kinds of strange things that, yeah, were just, it was mind boggling <laughs> at certain points, you know, and very, and stressful too, because they were the very particular client there, a client that has a heritage just, you know, it's been around 75 years and or plus years and uh, they're one of the, you know, like a premier brand company where, you know, they're very elegant. Um, you know, they've, every detail is very well thought about. It's very strategically planned. You know, it's uh, not there just to, you know, I don't know how to explain it. They're just one of those companies that they were uh, definitely scary to work for. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked out in the end. Yeah, like I said, it worked out in the end. Good experience. So when you're creating something like the, the the EV, the engine noise, are you using uh, recordings at all, or is it all synthesis? For the for this particular project, it was synth synthesis based. I used a couple of different things. I, I would say ke the Kima system, which is uh, made by Symbolic Sound. It's a sound computation engine that runs uh, all the processing on this offline box. Uh, I have a Pacarena. It's called the Pacarena processing box, and uh, I used basically resynthesis techniques um, and additive synthesis, um, combination of basically you know, these like generating um, harmonics really. So when I was working on the EV sound, the, the the most important aspect of it was harmonically the hum and purr of the engine. Um, how does it sound? It you know at really slow. Uh, drive a slow driving pace, you know, to more of like a climax as you're crescendoing up, um, you know, to full speed, right, higher RPMs. The that was probably the trickiest part is getting the sound to sound consistent at lower and higher uh, rates, but but not be fatiguing to the ears and also distracting. And um, my task was to try to make it sound futuristic but also take elements from past Jaguar cars. So I did a whole engine study where I went and recorded all of the current line of Jaguar cars. And uh, I looked at the, I analyzed the engine sounds in the computer and looked at where just, I was basically frequency hunting, looking for harmonics, like listening to where the harmonics, where everything was at. And then I was basically resynthesize those uh, within the, with the Kima system and this other application called Spear. And then I was studying those harmonics, and then I was basically used those as a basis. I was like, all right, I'll take these as a basis since their customer base is familiar with the purr of a Jaguar. They already know, you know, they're familiar with the sounds. So I didn't want to be make. I didn't want my sound to be so far removed from what the customers knew what a Jaguar was. I wanted to be able to take that as a basis, and but at the same time design something um, new. I mean, modern. Like take that and modernize that. And, and um, so that was basically my approach to um, tackling that situation. Um, and then, you know, like I said, instead of using mechanical sources, uh, we did it all with synthesis. I did it with, with you know, basically synthesis. So obviously the sounds are changing as the car accelerates or decelerates. So is, is whatever system the car is using, is it playing and layering different sounds or is it synthesizing it as it like in the car <laughs> it's using this sophisticated playback system that's in the car it's the software that um that they created in-house yeah so it would take all my synthesized waveforms and then it would layer them and play them and um according to what the driver is doing the sounds would activate or play uh, depending on you know where whatever state the vehicle is in so yes you're correct it was a system that they devised up and took all the content that I created and I don't I, I, I had to put it more simply but yeah it was yeah it was the yeah, system that they created in-house I think they had two German engineers that designed the software that actually got implemented into the car and then um, 
but it's pretty sophisticated. It's very complex, uses a lot of complex filters and pitch algorithms and all kinds of stuff to, to make it uh, to make it do what it does. But yeah, um, so it was kind of a, a lot of stuff going back and forth to get it to, to be just right, I guess, to get all the tuning and everything uh, to sit well, so. Yeah, it kind of adds a whole new dimension to the manufacturing of a car and what the car needs to run, you know? Like, that, that kind of bespoke playback system is pretty pretty crazy thing to add to a car. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and I think in the future, we might even have, like, things where you could go, like, to a store and buy different sound sets. You could make it, you could hot rod your car out. You know how, like, people put the crazy mufflers and stuff and it make their car sound crazy? Like, I think that this will open the doors even for people to like customize how they want their sounds so you could download like maybe in the future we'll have oh, i want my car to sound like a ferrari you know or or you know like a maserati or something you could you could pick different sound sets and then maybe you know decide how you want your car to sound or if you want it to be more of a quiet car or a really loud car or um i think we're gonna have this explosion of like different speaker manufacturers making customized cool speakers where they're going to be outside of the car and you could really like soup it up and put all these subwoofers and and i'm imagining this fun audio (laughs) (laughs) futuristic world of like these like hi-fi audio car systems that are you know not only sound good inside but they sound great outside too Um, what are some of the other like uh, quote unquote futuristic or unusual sound design things you've been working on? I know you've been doing some VR stuff, and I don't know which things you can talk about. So, yeah, tell me what the things you can talk about. Yeah, the uh, I worked with Google on their virtual reality platform Daydream, which is which runs on the Pixel phone. Um, I also worked with them on s- several apps they released for the HTC Vive virtual reality system um, and headset. The, uh, in particular, I worked on uh, Google Earth VR, doing all the UR, the UI user interaction sounds and stuff when you're like flying around and all the sort of like ambisonic ambiences and then um, a lot of the UI controller menu selecting sounds and then like, for instance, grabbing the sun and moving it to like, you know, positioning what time of day you want it to be and whether you're like you know at sunset or you know all the way at night and there's all these different sounds for all the gestures a lot of the control user controller uh gesture movements and zooming in on the globe and um stuff like that and uh, so that was that was also another project that i had no prior experience in working in kind of like the jaguar thing um i I hadn't I really didn't know any friends that had worked in virtual reality or mixed in, you know, uh, ambisonic audio. Um, so it was another one of those projects I picked up where I was like, okay, I've got to figure all this out. <laughs> They've hired me. Now I've got to learn this stuff. So I'm going to have to, you know, do some research, do some homework. And it's kind of like a crash course through. So I stumbled around quite a bit on that project too, but learned a lot of things as well. So I had to capture a lot of the, ambiences with uh, ambisonic mics um so i, I kind of had to learn my way around getting good clean recordings was very challenging with using ambisonic uh, microphones um you know with the multiple capsules capturing audio what is ambisonic so um ambisonic audio is basically uh the most simplest way i can ex- explain it without getting too technical is basically just 360 audio so most typically most microphones either uh, are either mono or stereo in the most common configurations you find you find either xy ortf configuration or mono microphones that capture instruments or uh you know stereo space and you you have all these different variants of uh, microphone steps you can do binaural recordings with like dummy heads or the Jekyll and Diss. There's, um, and then there are also some surround sound mics like DPA has a the DPA uh, I think it's a 5100 surround mic. There's a couple different mics and then the uh, ambisonic mics, which record to four channel uh, ambisonic audio. So the format is slightly different in that you get. Um, you have an uh, you have an XY. You've got your your XY axis, which is your left right, but then you have the Z axis, which is your up and down. So you can capture audio information above your head and below your head. Like I said, it's it's incredible 
and also nerve-wracking at the same time to record uh, with ambisonic mics because it, I mean, you basically get everything. So you could hear an airplane that you can't even see that might be you know 10 miles away and you're and you're like where is this thing i can't even see it how is it getting in my recording um you know whereas i had always used um shotgun stereo microphones or mono microphones which basically reject everything behind you so you can single point source capture a sound and it will reject everything else but that so you're less prone to getting sounds that are unwanted in the mix but with the ambisonic microphone, you absolutely have to be in a perfect location, um, which is very hard to do. And for me, working on that project, it's probably one of the most challenging things about working on that project with Google was just getting just the absolute perfect recording um, to match exactly what you were seeing in the VR world. Um, you know, for instance, on the VR daydream page, there was like a waterfall and a stream, like a babbling brook, and there was trees and birds flying around. So I must have, I must have went to like, I must say, thirty or four, between thirty or forty different waterfall places that look like the homepage, and it wasn't until the very end where I got one that was very close to matching. Uh, what you were experiencing in the daydream homepage um, to get just the right amount of every element, you know, and um, just like all the elements uh, I had to record separately, like the wind and the birds, um, everything, crickets, every sort of element I had to do and then mix them, place them in an amazonic mix. Um, but it's just the simplest things that you hear in there, which don't sound very complex at all, were actually very difficult <laughs> to achieve. And um, I'm sure most people are just like, oh, these sound, these sound boring. You know, <laughs> like it's not really exciting. You know, you put the headphones on and you're moving around and stuff. You're moving your head and you can hear like, oh, okay, it's kind of cool. But but they were really, really challenging. The wind, I think, was the most challenging. I remember spending weeks and weeks on getting the perfect when just just the perfect gentle breeze sound was probably the mo the thing I struggled with the most. And in the end, I actually we couldn't get I couldn't get the perfect wind. I had to use procedural audio. I'd use a software program that generates a synthetic wind sounds. And then I had to tweak it just perfectly, and then take that uh, take those recordings, and then remix them re put them in, in the ambisonic mix and place them in in these environments so it was it was a struggle yeah i'll tell you this is like the simplest things that i thought would be really easy were actually very very difficult to get just right um so once again like i said it was a, it was a, it was an interesting learning process and kind of stumbled my way through it but I, I got i got through the other side and and i picked up a lot of um really helpful information so future projects won't be probably so difficult and now there's better tools too i want to say that when i first began working i want to say it's like 2016 when we first started working on the project there there was not many ambisonic plugins and tools now it's gained much more popularity with like you know sony like you know you have sony playstation vr now a lot of bigger companies are starting to take uh a bigger interest with virtual reality and augmented reality now apple and some of the big giants like microsoft and their hololens um they're uh they're all looking to this uh and and so we're starting to see much better development kits and um software and things that are that make the process much easier now than what it was back then when i was started working on it <laughs> but yeah it's kind of cool that's kind of cool i guess my job is <laughs> I guess my job could be a lot worse. You know, I can't <laughs> complain. I could be flipping burgers somewhere in some shitty place or something. I'm like, I'm pretty, um, really fortunate that I can do what I can do and like sit in my studio, in my basketball shorts, and work on these crazy weird projects every day. And um, yeah, it's pretty awesome though. <laughs> <laughs>